As we continue through the Word of God verse by verse, we find ourselves in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And we've been in the middle of what seems on the surface a very interesting topic and series of headship and head coverings. By way of review, what the Apostle Paul is doing by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is he is using an ancient local custom of women wearing head coverings in order to establish a bigger principle, which is the subordination of women to men. Now, we've talked about the wonder of God's design and the danger of letting society encroach upon that in our minds, especially as Christians. This is something that can happen not only in this topic, but in a vast array of topics, more and more, it seems, every year that passes in our liberal culture. We cannot let society define and reinterpret what the Bible says. No matter who you respect that says those things, no matter how much we may feel that it's unfair, no matter how much we may think it's not right, we must always default to the Bible and the one who wrote the Bible, God, very God. We have seen already that Paul has established that for a married woman in that time and place to go out without a head covering would be really bad. It was a cultural norm. It was expected of them. But to do ministry as a Christian, as a woman, without a head covering would be much worse. Because then you are not just saying, I'm going to ditch the cultural norm. You're going amidst the people who understand God's design for marriage, God's design for men, God's design for women, and saying, doesn't matter to me, even in the midst of God's people. You're not just offending the culture at that point. You're offending the chosen people of God. And we as God's people today have a deeper understanding of men's and women's roles in God's eyes And we must understand that and stick to those. It would be so unthinkable in that day, so offensive to not wear a head covering in public, let alone at church, that Paul says that if you're going to go without such a covering, you might as well shave your head. A public symbol of shame that was associated with prostitution and adultery. And we saw last week that the big picture is gender distinctions. He is establishing those, but gender distinction and God's glory manifested through them. All of that explains the reality of how a man is to honor God, but also how a woman is to honor God by honoring her husband. But let's be frank. Until now, we haven't been told why. We haven't seen any biblical foundation to justify this view of female subordination or gender roles. Equality, remember, but subordination, different roles. And again, we appeal to the very Godhead. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, is equal with God the Father, and yet He submits to the Father's will, even to the point of torture and death. The Holy Spirit submits to both of them, and yet He too is equal. And then when we see the gender roles, we've never been told yet why. Why does God do this? Why does God want this? Why do we do this? 2,000 years since he wrote about head coverings, long after the issue of head coverings has dissipated, it's disappeared, it's a non-issue, 
Christians are not called to do that today. They haven't for decades, for centuries. Why? Well, as we continue this morning, Paul will tell us why. And he doesn't just use theology. He doesn't just use a doctrinal practice from the early church. He goes all the way to the very beginning. The beginning of what? The beginning of everything except for God himself and the angels. Paul will appeal to the very plan of creation and the way in which God created humanity to explain why men have a particular function and women have a different function. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 7 through 10. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 7 through 10. We continue this flow of thought. And he says, For man ought to have his head covered, ought not to have his head covered, rather, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Interesting. There's a lot here. Let's jump in. And this morning I want to give you four theological reasons for subordination. Four theological reasons for subordination. The first one is the respective representations. The respective representations, plural. Look again at verse 7 where he says, For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. Remember, though we pick apart the Scriptures and I preach verse by verse, which does not allow us or give me the time to go through, for example, an entire chapter, let alone an entire book of the Bible in one morning, because we want to go deeper, we want to go slower, because those work together. The slower you go, the deeper you can go, which is why we go verse by verse, if not word by word. But sometimes we can uh, lose the forest for the trees. Remember, this is one letter. This is one flow of thought. This is the same topic. He didn't stop and then come back and write these three or four verses seven days later the way we're studying them. And so we must remember that he connects this with the word for. It shows us that he is continuing his thought. He is elaborating on what he has said in verses 4 through 6, which I'd like to read for you again. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, which Paul said, knows that that is true, let her cover her head. Now in verse 7, he gets into his explanation of why she should do this. Now remember, this isn't just about wearing some sort of cloth or veil or whatever it is. Again, we don't have archaeological evidence to show us exactly what this head covering looked like. But he's bringing up a bigger principle. It is quite possible because the Corinthians have sent Paul several questions. 
that he is answering in 1 Corinthians that they asked about wearing or not wearing head coverings for the women, for Christian women, for Christian women in the church. And as we saw with simply eating meat at a temple, he uses it to bring up a bigger picture. And here it is the roles of husband and wife within a marriage, but also within the church. And now, as I mentioned earlier, he explains why by referring back to Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. Now, he doesn't quote them, but we're going to look at those, uh, some verses from those chapters. The church would have been very familiar with this already, as you are with the creation account. But before we turn to Genesis, notice in verse 7, he's explaining why a man should not have his head covered, whereas a woman should. In other words, he's explaining why the woman should wear a sign of authority on her head, whereas a man should not. And notice that he uses the same term, but man is called the glory of God, and woman is called the glory of man. Now let's turn to Genesis chapter 1 and see what in the world all of this means. Genesis chapter 1, I'd like you to look at verses 26 through 28. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. You can't go any further back than this. If knowing that 1 Corinthians 11 is God's very words is not enough, he appeals to the very act of creating man and woman, Adam and Eve. There's nowhere else you can go. There's nowhere else you can go. You go to the highest authority. You go furthest back in history as you can go. It's like saying, yeah, I don't think that's what this is for. And some guy goes, I actually had lunch with Steve Jobs, and he said, that's what the iPhone is for. You can't disagree with that. You've read the owner's manual, and now you've actually talked to the inventor and creator of the very item. There's no one else you can appeal to except for perhaps modern society or your own feelings. And so we go all the way back, and we can go no further. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image. This is the Holy Trinity speaking. According to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. You remember by this time, everything else had been created. Sun, moon, stars, earth, oceans, including the animal kingdom. So all the animals were already there. Verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Some of you have pets. Some of you enjoy going to the zoo to see animals. Uh, I myself am one of those. I really, really like animals. I appreciate them. But we must always remember that the height of God's creation was humanity. And not only that, He put us over humanity. You understand that there's even animosity between us and the animal kingdom such as meat-eating predators 
lions, tigers, animosity between us and things like rattlesnakes. We're scared of them. We run away from them. We freeze. We call animal control if we see them. Hopefully you'll never see a lion or tiger in the streets. Maybe a rattlesnake, a mountain lion. There's animosity there. We're scared of them rather than the opposite, although the opposite is kind of true, which is why they attack, but you see what I'm saying. Because of the fall, because of sin, but the way it was in the Garden of Eden, everyone got along, but humanity was over all of them. That's how it's going to be in the new earth as well. By the way, there will be no animosity between us and the animal kingdom. The lion and lamb shall frolic together in the fields. But to male and female, both Adam and Eve were created in God's image. The word image is a word that is used of a work of art or a picture, a pattern, an image. It could be an imprint of an image. This word, of course, in in its original context was before uh, photography, for example, or uh, computers. So what would they do when they needed an image? They would carve it in something, right? Put it in their form of ink or dye, and then they would press it on the paper, kind of like modern-day stamps, but probably not as clear. It could even refer to a shadow or a reflection. For mankind, it speaks of the fact that Adam and Eve and all of us are visible representations of God Himself. Now, this is very important, and it's a point of confusion for many people, especially because Jesus Christ came to earth. Our representation of God, the fact that we are made in the image of God, does not entail a physical bodily resemblance. This does not mean that God has a physical likeness to us. It is a moral likeness. When we talk about being made in the image of God, we're talking about the moral, the spiritual, the mental image of God. Unlike the rest of creation, we have an intellect. We have an advanced will. We have knowledge. We have emotions that are similar to God. Stained with sin, but similar to God. Finite, not infinite, but similar to God. Though some members of the animal kingdom have some of these, definitely a will. Some of you dog owners like to think they have more intellect and emotions than they probably do. But regardless... They are nowhere as advanced as human beings who are created in His image. This was not a process of evolution. This is not just because we succeeded and the animals did it. On day one when they were created, when the animals were created and then man and woman were created, we, they already had this distinction, this differentiation. Part of being made in the image of God also includes holiness which was lost at the fall before believers was restored in Jesus Christ. Now, both men and women are made in the image of God. It is very important to understand that regardless of who you are, as a believer, you represent Him, you represent His character on earth, and as those who have dominion over the rest of creation. There is an entire sermon here about how we represent Him, not ourselves. We'll leave that there because I think you can elaborate on that in your own minds. Going back to 1 Corinthians. Paul goes into more detail and says that man is the glory of God 
but woman is the glory of man. We have already established equality. There's no question there. Both in the image of God and even what I said about the holiness being restored in Christ, Christian men and women are restored to the same holiness. There is no distinction there in terms of salvation, in terms of spirituality, in terms of the blood that purchased your soul. There is nowhere in Scripture or anywhere in society or anywhere in social circles in their desires and dreams that speaks of equality as wholly and completely as the passages we're looking at this morning. But then he talks about the differentiations of glory. Glory, that word in and of itself, speaks of a sign of honor. In this context, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 10.31, do all things to the glory of God, it is a reflection of the character of another such that that other person is honored. It is a reflection of that person's character so that they are honored. Remember back to 1 Corinthians 10.31. That's why we are to do everything to the glory of God. Everything we do, even whether we eat or drink, is to reflect back His glory and perfection and wonder. But then in continuation of what he wrote in verse 2 about Christ being the head of every man and man being the head of a woman, Paul now says that man is the glory of God. That is, he manifests God's authority and will and reflects back God's character to him. Do Christian women do that? Absolutely, they must. But in this particular context, remember the Corinthians are asking about male-female relationships and specifically head coverings. So he says the woman in turn manifests the authority and will of the man. As such... In worship and ministry, the glory of God, and this is important to understand this, because we're talking about a physical covering, remember? The glory of God should not be covered, even in a symbolic way, whereas anything else, including the glory of man, should be covered. We're talking about worship now in a worship service. In other words, nothing in those little house churches should happen that detracts from the glory of God. Which explains why the glory of man, which is woman, must have their head covered. The focus must be on God. You say, well, if it's just symbolic, why do we do it? For the same reason, none of you are in PJs this morning. You dress up to some degree to reflect the glory of God in worship, to not be a distraction to our worship. If you showed up in pajamas and bunny slippers, you would distract us, right? We'd be singing the wrong words because we're not looking up here, we're looking at you, right? It's the same reason where even before COVID, if you have an uncontrollable cough, you stay home because you don't want to distract people in worship. Right? It's the same reason some of you guys are uh, put your phone on silent when you're watching the football game while I'm preaching. I know no one does that here. I'm just kidding. We don't want to distract. 
And in that day and age, it was so significant. It was such a normal part of worship and the culture, like wearing clothes, that it would be distracting if a woman came in and didn't have this. And ultimately, when we're distracted in worship, it's not about just singing well or listening to the sermon. Ultimately, it's about distracting us from glorifying God. This is a hard principle to grasp today in our day and age because as much as women don't want to be seen as the glory of their husband, so husbands do not honor their wives as their glory. We cannot blame all of the problems in society and marriages simply because women don't do what they're supposed to do because men aren't doing what they're supposed to do either. But regardless, you need to understand the beauty of what is being laid out here. Glory. Glory. Because up until this point, what have we seen? What has Paul talked about? Shame. Shame. It's a shame. It's a disgrace. It's a shame. And now he says, he counters that and says, but you can. You can show glory. You can honor God. Countering shame with glory. Isn't that the Christian life? Isn't that sin then repentance? Isn't that grumbling at work and then coming to worship? Shame countered by glory. What a wonderful picture of God's plan. What a wonderful delight to live this out. You know, there's so many things that we work hard on. And we know that God helps us. There's so many things that that we we struggle with and we say, i got to battle this for the glory of God. i got to fight with this. It is hard. I'm losing friends. I'm losing sleep. I'm losing weight. It is so hard. The guilt, the discipline, the fight, the battle, the victory, and then the failure again. How beautiful and wonderful it is that we have given, been given a head start, a leg up, simply because of our DNA and our genetics, male or female. It's given us a head start. Beautiful. It's not that women, again, don't glorify God. You must. But to make his point in this particular context... Paul is emphasizing the order of things in God's design. But why is woman the glory of man and not the other way around? And see, this is, this is where, we, this is where it's, it's so clear in, in Genesis. But society likes to, to shove their little crowbar in there and say, eh, it's because your pastor hates women. Because the Bible is misogynistic. And then we just stop. Say, mm, yeah, no, let me look at these. Yeah, look at, look at the world. That must be it. No. To explain this, Paul again appeals to creation, and which leads us to our second theological reason for subordination, the original order. The original order. Verse 8. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. Genesis chapter 2 now. Would you turn there with me? Genesis chapter 2. And we'll look at verses 21 through 23. Genesis chapter 2, verses 21 through 23. 
So the Lord God caused the deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. You ever, by the way, you ever think about that? Right? It's kind of obvious. God causes a deep sleep. Obviously, he slept. It's totally side note. Don't you all wish God would do that? Can you cause God? <laughs> could you cause a deep sleep just one night? I really need it. We all need it. Anyways, I digress. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had just taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. I'm joking. I doubt he said it like that. If you look at the original Hebrew, he's like, Whoa! Yes! I don't know if that's there. But he must have been excited. It must have been wonderful. And it's kind of like that first step, right? Who... Would that be what you would say if you were the first man to ever walk on the moon? One small step for man means it's like profound. And here he is. Yes, now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Right? It's probably after a few backflips and a little breakdancing. But this simply explains why woman is man's glory. She is bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh. See, in the original creation of humankind, woman came from man. He was created from dust. She was created from him. Both man and woman, Adam and Eve, were created by God. But only one of them came through the agency of another human being. It wasn't Adam because he was the first ever. Yes, woman was created by God, but through the agency of man. To put it another way, Adam was created by God apart from human agency. No other human was involved. No other human could be involved. They didn't exist. Eve, on the other hand, was created by God through the agency of Adam or man. Fast forward. This goes back to the head coverings and the authority of the husband because there's a clear differentiation not only in the biology and roles of man and woman, but all the way back also or because of the original order of creation. And again, when something goes that deep, we see the significance of such markers as head coverings or whatever the local current cultural custom is. But this is a good reminder, speaking of cultural customs, that although there are cultural symbols in every society and every period in history, The unchanging scriptures hold the greatest meaning and must inform all symbols for Christians. I would hope, for example, for those of you who are married, that the wedding ring on your finger holds greater significance for you than your non-Christian friends and neighbors because you understand the significance of marriage in God's eyes. It is just a cultural symbol. Non-Christians and Christians wear wedding rings, at least in our country. But it holds deeper significance for us as believers, doesn't it? Knowing that we were married not just with friends and family, but in the eyes of God. That vows were said that involved the name of God. 
Most likely, Scripture passage was read. Christian songs were read. You had a pastor and not a judge officiate your wedding, most likely. We understand all these symbols. We must be careful and not say, well, it's just something I do because, you know, well, it's cultural. It's the norm. Don't want to stand out. These things have deeper meaning for us because of our connection to the Lord. And whether it's a wedding ring or a head covering or taking your husband's last name or whatever it is, any other cultural norm, we do so with the recognition of God's plan and God's glory. Because woman originated from man and not man from woman. And speaking of going deeper, there's an even more important clue in the Genesis account. And this also answers the question, why? Not so much why head coverings or why this order of creation, but why was woman created at all? And that leads us to our third theological reason for subordination, the calculated creation. The calculated creation. Look at verse 9. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Would you turn with me back to Genesis 2 again? Genesis chapter 2. Earlier we read verses 21 through 23. Now I want to read the passage before it. Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 20. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. And then we go to verse 21, which we read earlier, the account of the creation of Eve. God made a woman, Eve, for Adam. He did not make Adam for Eve, not man for woman. The facts of creation cannot be changed. This is a truth, a reality, not just of Scripture. It is a fact of nature. You can ignore this fact in your marriage. You can ignore this fact in your view of what a man should be or what a woman should be. But just as when you ignore any fact of nature, there will be great loss and harm. If you choose to ignore any fact of nature, difficulties will arise. If you ignore the fact that waves suck you into themselves, into a place where mammals cannot breathe, there will be harm and danger. Ignoring the laws of gravity at the Grand Canyon will end in great pain and suffering. And disregarding the reality of heat from fire will cause much damage. In the same way, you are welcome to ignore the fact that in the very beginning, woman was created for man, but that too will result in harm and destruction. And if you don't believe me, turn on the news tonight. Family, but family fulfilling their roles, 
Men leading, husbands leading, wives submitting, children obeying. That was the building block, the very brick, the foundation of society. And when that started going awry, even in the Old Testament, you had society falling apart. And that's why society is falling apart even more and more. Because the discussion is not even about what should the husband do and what should the wife do. It is should the husband be a male anymore. Look at the need for foster care and adoption. Look at people beating their children, leaving them alone, not wanting them, calling them a mistake. Read about the prioritizing of the views of those who reject biblical and biological realities of gender. Observe the disregard of the limitations of sexual intimacy in marriage and marriage only with your spouse. And then look at the subsequent breakdown of family and life and the rise, the rise, the incredible millions and millions rise of murdered babies. You will see very clearly a world that is rejected, not only a fact of nature, but one of the very first facts of nature. A foundational fact of nature in which the rest of history was to be based upon and founded upon. She is of man, but also for man. Why? As a slave, as a tool, as an accessory? Absolutely not. But by God's wonderful design and out of necessity. There is no inferiority in any sense here. Not intellectually, not morally, not spiritually, not even functionally. Both are unique and both are to fulfill their roles. Within the marriage, his role is to lead and protect while hers is to follow that leadership and help. Flip those around or ignore them altogether and you have, well, frankly, you have the world we live in today. a world that most of you wish you didn't live in. So ingrained is this rejection of roles in society, as I mentioned before, that it goes far beyond the family. It goes into the arenas of how we view other authorities, government, police, teachers, bosses. We're so far gone that it seems laughable when a pastor blames the denial of roles in the marriage We're so far gone, we're 20 steps beyond that, that no one even sees the connection anymore. But the connection is very clear in Scripture. Tragedy, recently. The death toll rises. Forty years, that building in Florida had no problems. And it collapsed. You read the news, they're sparing you the graphic details. But you get it. Literally tons and tons of cement on bodies. When they're looking for bodies, they're not looking for them whole. They're trying to figure out why this fell, what caused it. And you know what one of the most plausible plausible reasons is? 
water. Water. There was a section of the building that was not built on a slope, and so water didn't drain, and so water just sat there, eventually eroded the waterproofing and eroded the concrete and steel so that a 40-year-old condominium high-rise fell from water. It seems laughable, something so simple. Surely it was a terrorist act. Surely it was a bomb. Maybe a car accident where a, a truck plowed into one of the pillars in the underground garage. It can't just be water. No way. Water, no way. And yet many believe, architects, that's why this building collapsed. All this wickedness in society from the redefinition of life and marriage, the restructuring of the most basic elements of humanity, gender, all because of a refusal to see the roles of men and women. No way! You're out of your mind. Just because women didn't want to submit to their husbands? No way. No way, it's just water. So simple. But it's true. And it's possible. We must be careful. Personal feelings and individual bias has long-lasting and even eternal and spiritual repercussions. Let me give you a fourth and final theological reasons for subordination. We've seen the respective representations, the original order, the calculated creation. Fourthly, the angelic audience. The angelic audience. Up until now, you probably were familiar with everything I've said, but the, because of the angels probably threw you for a loop a little bit. Let me explain. In verse 10, it says, Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Again, the therefore signals that the result of all of this is that a woman should wear the head covering, which is a symbol of authority on her head. In other words, since she is the glory of man, since she originated from man, and since she was created for man's sake, she holds and displays a subordinate role. Paul says that in light of all of this, she ought to do it. She ought to do it. This signifies a moral obligation. That's very important. This is not merely a marital or social obligation. This is not just to do it to respect your husband or to honor the church. This is about God's glory. This is about respecting God's plan of creation, how He chose to create and design. And as we have seen throughout this chapter, this has to go beyond just doing it for the sake of doing it. This has to go beyond doing it merely out of respect for your husband's authority. This has to be done for God's glory as with anything that you do as a Christian. And only when we understand this do we see how something like head coverings is still applicable today, not in practice, but in attitude. If it's just about social norms, if you're just going to do it because of social norms, then what happens when society changes? 
If it's just about your husband, what happens when your husband makes you angry, doesn't lead, or isn't around? If it's just about peer pressure from the church, what happens behind closed doors when nobody from church is there to see you? This is an attitude that must be ingrained in your understanding of God's sovereignty fleshed out in His eternal design for humanity. For humanity. Everything was based on this. And by respecting your husband through submission and obedience, you worship God through submission and obedience. This is the same for any role. We are all in trouble, especially myself, if I preach how I preach merely because, oh, that's the culture at our church. Oh, I want to show respect for my seminary professors or simply for fear of being called out by any of you. We'd all be in trouble if that's where it ended, if that's where my motivation stopped. In a culture where I have many different methods and styles of preaching to choose from, from topical to seeker-sensitive to we all go to heaven, I choose this one because I want to be as faithful to God as possible, which you understand in turn, but only secondarily, makes me faithful to you. It's the same with your role in marriage, whether you're the husband or the wife, your role as a boss, your role as someone under a boss, your role as a child, which is all of us, to somebody. We do it for our parents. We do it for our bosses. We do it for the authority. We do it for the government. We listen to the police. Secondarily, to not get a ticket out of respect for them to uphold the law, but primarily out of faithfulness to God. That's how fulfilling our roles in marriage works. And Paul concludes by going, going full circle and says that women should do this because of the angels. What does this mean and how in the world is this going full circle? Let me backtrack and tell you a little bit about the angels. First, the angels are holy and bright. And much like what probably happened at the empty tomb with the women who went to embalm Jesus' body, if an angel were to appear right now, it would not be a chubby little baby with tiny wings like on your coffee mug this morning. Like those women, that angel would be so bright so holy that you would think it was God, because you've never seen God before, if the angel, which he will surely do, didn't tell you, get off your knees, don't worship me. We also know that angels observe human behavior. And, ready to get some chills? most likely present whenever believers are worshiping. Don't get mystical here. Stay biblical, okay? Jesus says in Luke 15.10 that there is joy among the angels over one sinner who repents. 
Back in chapter 4 and verse 9 of 1 Corinthians, Paul says that God has made a spectacle of the apostles both before men and angels. In 1 Timothy 5, Paul tells Timothy to keep the principles that Paul has just taught him and charges him, I quote, in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ and of his chosen angels. Angels are here. And so women are to obey in this area for the sake of the angels who observe them. But wait, there's more. Not only are the angels watching now, they were present at creation. Job 38.7 tells us this. They were there, in other words, when God created man and woman. So they heard and understood why God created man and then woman. They were eyewitnesses of the order of creation and the reason woman was made. They understood the outworking of God's plan for gender roles. Angels are not sovereign. They don't know. They, they, don't, they are not all-knowing as God is. And I don't know if this happened, but you can imagine as God is putting forth every animal, the angels there are saying, is this one? Pick this one, Adam. Pick this one, God, for Adam to be the helper. Pick this one. Look at the wall. Look at that one. Oh, that one. So look at that long neck. Look at those stripes. Look at those spots. And with Adam in my little fantasy, they too, when he pulled out that rib and created Eve, were like, wow. Yes, God. You are holy and good. So they were there. They understand fully God's plan. They don't have what we have in terms of marriage and genders. They, they, the Bible even indi indicates there's a longing for them to understand this fulfillment of salvation and the working out of God's plan. They're seeing it. They're watching it. They're worshiping God as they see it, as they're among us. But there are things that they understand, such as God's Word, and especially this because they were there for our context. So the woman must be careful not to offend those who have a full understanding of God's design and are here watching us. But wait, there's more. You see, unsubmissiveness does not offend the angels only because of their understanding of creation and the order of the creation of humanity. It offends them because of their understanding of submission and the holiness of God. As bright and holy and powerful as they are, there are no creatures in existence as submissive as the angels. They are the most submissive of God's creatures. Isaiah chapter 6, 2, in Isaiah's vision, we see that in God's presence, in their worship, they themselves cover their feet and cover their eyes in awe of the holiness, in respect of the greatness and holiness of God. To have any less reverence for God and His will is offensive to them because they get it. You can imagine they look at us and say, how can you not? You Pay attention. Why aren't you singing? 
You're in the presence of God and His people. Why are you frustrated and thinking about work? How dare you? How can you do this? Have you not seen? Do you not know? I cover my feet. I cover my eyes. And the remaining two I fly. Because God is holy and righteous and powerful and good. We cannot let our unsubmissiveness offend the most submissive and the most understanding of all God's creatures. It's like working so hard to establish your family and social stability only to have your kids and grandkids grow up and throw it all out and mock you and say you ruined the economy and tease you on social media. The angels look down and were there when God did all of this and say, what is going on? What in the world? I've been to the throne of God. I would not dare utter the words, that's not fair. How dare they? I was there. I was there when he died for their sins. Shouldn't they they get it more than I do? Yes, they've never been in the presence of God, but he died for their sins. How How can they? Don't they see? Don't they understand? Don't they know? And that's why it goes back full circle. Because it goes back to creation. But the perspective of those who are there and those who are here now. But here's the thing. As powerful as that is, so was and is God. He was there too. He did it. And He is here now calling us to these roles. I'd like you to turn as we close to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I am happy to do it. I love doing it. I enjoy doing it. I want to be practical. I want you to understand. But I would really like to be able to preach this passage without somehow trying to make certain women feel like this is actually good and it's okay and you can do it. Buck up, gal. If you really just looked at Scripture, there would be no need for that. Or there would have been in our sin an equal need to think that way as it would for the women to be like, <laughs> men, suckers, we got the good part. But we have been so influenced by society, we have so inf- been so influenced by social norms that are way outdated by creation. There are people alive today in our current generation and society who can remember, probably not from Scripture, 
but the cultural, no, cultural norm was to do these things. My point is, you want to listen to society and a social norm that has become reality in your grandmother's lifetime than something that existed a day after the creation of time? It doesn't make sense. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. The will of God is good and acceptable and perfect, and we all say amen because we think about accepting Christ as Lord and Savior. We think about murder is bad. We think about stealing is wrong and faithfulness to a spouse is good. But the will of God also goes back to men's and women's roles. It is good and acceptable and perfect. And what Paul is warning us here is not be conformed. It's being squeezed into a mold. You ever put anything in a mold like jello? Whatever the shape of that mold is, that's what the jello is going to come out as. Put it in a bundt cake pan, it comes out looking like a bundt cake. You put it in a fun little pan like we do for our boys, like shaped like little robots or little shapes, it comes out as little robots and little shapes. And Paul is saying, don't let the world and social norms squeeze you into its mold, conformed, rather be transformed. See, conformed is from the outside. Society pressure, societal pressures, outside in, squeezing you. Transformed is from the inside out. Only God can do that. This past week, my youngest son had his first day of school. Ever. Would have put him in school last year, but uh, something happened. You might have heard of it, COVID. So no new students. And so he went in. He's young. First time in school. He has been waiting months for this. He could not wait. So excited. Packing his bag, packing things, telling us what he's going to bring to school. So excited. You know what's coming, but it didn't come. Got to school, about to drop him off, let go of his hand, still excited. Can't wait. We were actually scared that he'd pull one of those, doesn't even look back to wave at mommy and daddy like come on man we're in tears over here so excited couldn't wait different protocol now right everyone's got to take temperature stand in line outside parents aren't allowed inside and so we're milling around outside for a while as the teachers got everyone in line and then that one kid showed up it's always that one kid screaming no, kicking, falling on the floor, crawling on the floor, scratching his mom's neck, scared for his life. And for the first time in months, my son went to my wife and said, I'm scared. 
All it takes is one person loud enough for you to listen and you're conformed to the world. All it takes is one person to be scared and you think, maybe there's something to be scared of here. You've seen this. All it takes is one person in the workplace to gossip and pretty much, pretty soon you're all joining in. All it takes is one person to complain and all of you unload. The power of other people especially those who don't know Christ. When that boy showed up screaming out of fear, did that boy's fear instantly change the teachers from caring and kind to monsters? No. Did it cause my wife and I who planned to be there to pick him up to suddenly decide, ah, we're never coming back. We're going to desert him. He'll never see us again. No. Did it change the reality of how excited he had been up to that point? No. But one person's opinion changed his demeanor, even though the truth never changed. Don't let someone else's opinion change your demeanor, even though the truth has never and will never change. Because you know what changed my son's fear back into excitement? He sucked it in, sucked it up, walked into that room, saw his friendly teacher, saw the toys, saw the happy other kids. In other words, he walked into the classroom and he saw the truth. See the truth. Because when society pressures you to change your views, you need to get back to the Word and see the truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for the truth. Thank You that it is good. Thank You that Your will is wonderful. Father, help us because it's so hard to, to weed out what we think is normal or even right because of societal pressures, what even our respected teachers or maybe even our parents and siblings have told us, help us to understand your word and to respectfully disagree. Things change so fast, Father, and we're thankful that you never change. We're reminded even with that phrase, new normal, that there are changes that are permanent, not for the first time. 9-11, we remember, Lord, change things for us forever. COVID will change things for us forever. But you never change, Lord, and may we stick to that reality. And the ability, Father, to do your will and to follow your word, we're thankful, Father, that also never changes. Give us strength. Give us the desire. Use us for your glory in our roles and everywhere else. In Jesus' name.